So you're the one that spent the whole podcast shitting all over darkness. By which I mean you didn't like it quite as much as I did. Yeah, basically. Ergo, you were shitting all over darkness. Okay. So, you have anything left in you for this one? This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. podcast hour spectacular where the fear of death is what keeps us alive i am glenn butler and today our star trek vault series lands past star trek bed past star trek bath we've reached star trek beyond beyond the beyond and we are doing our reaction show tonight for the new blockbuster motion picture with me, as always, is my own flesh and blood, my brother, Mr. Scott Butler. Scott, do you know why we are here? Why we are all here? I didn't know that you were also a fan of Star Trek Bed and Star Trek Bath. Did you download them from the same skeevy site that I did? Ooh, you know it. So, this movie is coming out in the year 2016, when Star Trek is in its 50th anniversary year, with this movie as the one kind of big release for the anniversary to, to center on. Scott, how's your anniversary year going? It's been sort of uneventful, since this is indeed the first release. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot slower than, say, the 25th anniversary year. Yeah, well, 25th anniversary had a... Had a major television show and a major motion picture, both of which pretty much everyone loved. Uh, the 50th anniversary, there's a uh, mixed anticipation for the new movie and an upcoming TV show that, I don't know about anyone else, but I'm cautiously optimistic until I actually see the thing. Like, like I was cautiously optimistic for this movie until we saw it. Well, I was a little more optimistic for the movie because it had the track record of the previous two, which were both awesome. Yes, well, that depends very much on what you feel about the track record of the previous two, as we've covered in our recent episodes. I do understand the people that were nervous about this movie because of the departure of the screenwriters from the previous movie, Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orsi. Because originally, when J.J. Abrams decided he wasn't going to direct this third movie, they had originally given the job to Roberto Orsi. And he was developing an idea. He hired two other writers to work with them. He was going to oversee the creation of the movie and then direct the film. And then he left the production as well. So the absence of any of the people involved in the first two movies could, I suppose, have produced some anxiety about how good this third one would end up being. 
Is that the sort of opinion that you encountered online? People concerned that Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orsi weren't involved in this movie? I think there was a lot of concern that maybe J.J. Abrams wouldn't be as involved in this one, wouldn't really have his hand on the till as much as he did in the previous two. I think there were a lot of people worrying about that. But let's move into kind of a uh, spoiler-free baseline review that we'll do before we move into specifics about the movie. Of course, Bob Orsi and the script that he was developing for the movie got thrown out very close to the start of filming. And Simon Pegg came in, Justin Lin came in as director, they developed a new premise and a new script very close to the start of filming. So, given that instability around the uh, making of the movie, how do you think it turned out? I think it turned out great. I think this is another really, really good movie. It easily measures up to the previous two. I mean, I'll have to see it eight or ten more times to really judge, but... I think... One reaction I've seen from people who saw it early, and it kind of felt like everyone saw this before we did, right? Between the marathon on Wednesday and press screenings, screenings for reviewers. It, it, Didn't they run it at Comic-Con like two days ago? Yeah, they, ran it at, they premiered it at Comic-Con with a live orchestra and choir performing the score. Yeah, a whole lot of people have already seen this movie, considering that officially it doesn't open until tomorrow. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> just reading through Twitter and reading blogs, it kind of felt like everyone else saw the movie already, but I, I know that's actually not true. And just for everyone listening, we're recording this Thursday night. Yeah. It, 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 it's Thursday night. We went to the 7 p.m. showing, so it technically opens on the 22nd, which is Friday, which doesn't begin for another couple of hours Right, so technically the movie isn't open yet, and actually that was kind of a funny moment before the movie started with the uh, theater ads running before the movie, and there was this big ad for Star Trek Beyond opening Friday. There was, actually, yes. That was sort of an odd moment, sitting in the theater waiting for the Star Trek movie to begin, and there's an ad for the Star Trek movie with its release date tomorrow. Also, there was a short video before the movie started of Simon Pegg recording a short thing saying, Thanks for actually coming to see this thing in a theater. Yeah, exactly. One of those, you know, thanks for not bootlegging movies. Yeah. Thanks for not waiting two months for an HD copy download. Throughout this movie, I was left thinking that this is good proper Star Trek. <laughs> you know, about the only thing it was missing as, like, a good Toast episode would be a big Kirk speech at the end. You know, that, that that big speech that he has about how the society on the planet they've landed on is wrong. And they need to, like, learn what love is or whatever. Otherwise, there was exploration. There was a pretty good balance between the characters, I feel. I think everyone kind of got serviced in their own way. Ho-ho. <laughs> um... Everyone had their little piece of the story. Yeah, I think Simon Pegg and the other writers, producers of the movie did a good job balancing all of that with the action blockbuster elements that you're just going to have in a Star Trek movie now. I was pleased that all of the characters really got their own little bit, but I was pleased in particular that Anton Yelchin had a good section of the movie where he was featured prominently and got to do more than he did in Darkness, at least. Yeah, we saw 
In our episode about the trailer, we talked about how it looked like there were kind of unique combinations of characters, or people were kind of getting paired off in ways that we hadn't seen in the previous movies, and I really think that worked well throughout the movie. And yeah, I mean, I liked it. it it's good, proper Star Trek. It's funny you say that, because that was almost exactly my reaction to the 2009 movie. How's that? That, you know, the pleasant relief that, hey, this is good, proper Star Trek. You know, this isn't whatever dross they were making at the end of the franchise in the early 2000s. This isn't some other thing that they've slapped the Star Trek name onto in an attempt to get mileage out of the franchise. This, this is good, proper Star Trek. That's the sort of reaction you have generally after something that is not good, proper Star Trek. Which brings me back to you shitting all over darkness, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, we covered my problems with that movie voluminously, and I'm still not sure I really expressed myself as well as maybe I could have in that episode, but whatever. Whatever problems you had with darkness that you're not adequately able to explain to us or yourself, you didn't have them with this movie? I don't think we need to review my performance on our last episode this much. <laughs> I'll do that while I'm trying to get to sleep, thank you very much. <laughs> but no, this this movie, I, I just enjoyed. I just really, really enjoyed the movie, and I, I think that's really the most important thing I could say about it without spoilers. You want to move into spoilers now? I suppose. I don't know what else to say without going into spoilers, so... Alright, great. Well, we will be talking about this movie in its totality from here on out, so... If you haven't seen it yet, please, please do. Bickety-bam, we're in spoiler town. I just want to kind of yell out Snape killed Dumbledore. <laughs> that's my... That's the image in my head evermore of spoilers, are those asshole people that went around on midnight the night that that book was released, yelling at people waiting in line outside of the Barnes & Noble. You remember that? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, spoilers... Although my favorite story about Harry Potter spoilers is when someone got the final book and flipped to the final pages and before going back to the beginning to actually read it just saw the sentence Ginny kissed Albus. <laughs> oh! Oh! <laughs> like, wow, that's a plot twist. Oh, shocking swerve! <laughs> So, yes, um, I think obviously the first thing we have to talk about with this movie is the unfortunate death of Anton Yelchin, which obviously came as sort of a blow for everyone involved in the movie, all the, all the castmates and production crew and, and everyone, especially for a movie that was already going to be paying tribute in a way to Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. You know, to, to, to lose two cast members from such disparate generations of Star Trek. You know, it, it's it's kind of... That's the thing that struck me, because given the ages of some of these people, I mean, we're talking about a show that premiered in 1966, and we've only lost three of the main cast members? I mean, three out of seven, okay, it's a high percentage, but still, we've only lost three people from this show that from 1966, and we've lost nobody from the 1987 show, and nobody from the 1993 show, and nobody from the 1995 show... 
and nobody from the 2001 show, and now the fourth ever main cast member is one of the kids from the 2009 version. He was, what, 27 when he died? Yeah. I mean, you've got William Shatner is still kicking around at 85, Nichelle Nichols is in her 80s, George Takei and Walter Koenig are 79 each, Patrick Stewart's been in his 70s since the 1980s. Oh. <laughs> and yet it's 27-year-old Anton Yelchin who dies. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just, it's really sad, really sudden, obviously. And so, aside from that kind of personal aspect of it, you start to think about his character a little bit, and I think it's a very good thing that they've said they're not recasting him. Yeah, that's probably the way to go. Like, it's a big fleet, he can go to another ship, you don't have to... Or, you know, he can, he can be the pathos in the next movie. You know, Kirk stares forlornly at the empty navigation console. Maybe. I'm not sure how much I'd want them to just copy what they did for Leonard Nimoy in this movie. Yeah, you'd, you'd kind of have to to an extent, I suppose. I mean, you have to do something, but I kind of like the fact that they put in the title card at the end, you know, the movie's dedicated to Leonard Nimoy, and then they put in an extra card for Anton... And just kind of left it at that. And otherwise, the movie is the movie, and the character is the character. Well, yes, because it was, was obviously filmed before he died. But... Obviously. Um, I am very glad that they didn't kill him in the movie. <laughs> um... Well, that's what I was saying. Like, what do you do in the next movie? Like, there's only three ways you can go. Either you say that Chekhov died, which is going to be pretty similar to what happened to Leonard Nimoy's Spock in this movie, because... That's all you can do when you don't have the actor to film a farewell scene. Or you can say, oh, he transferred off and he's the first officer of the... Reliant. Yeah. Which is... I don't know how I would feel about that. If the actor is dead, but you say, oh yeah, his character is just off on another ship and we'll never see them again. I don't know how I would feel about that. I mean, on the one hand, it's nice that the character lives on. On the other hand, they would necessarily have to be completely forgotten because they're never going to appear on screen again. So, I, I'm not sure how I would feel about that. And the third way to go is just to not to mention it at all, which I think would be the worst of the three, frankly. Yeah, I think you can't just not mention it. I'm not sure how exactly you thread that needle while being minimally trite about it. I mean, I'm glad I'm not a screenwriter. <laughs> well, how are you going to handle it in your fanfiction? Well, you're just going to write AU fanfiction where you didn't die. It's easy to get him back on in fanfiction. Okay, you, you want to do Gulu? What's Gulu? Uh, gay Sulu. Gays. What, it's the ship name of Sulu and Gayness? Well, we don't know his husband's name. Uh, so yeah, in this movie uh, we get a uh, little girl version of presumably Demora Sulu and her two daddies. First of all, we don't know if that's Demora, because Demora from the original timeline would have been born way after this time. I mean, she was fresh out of the Academy in the beginning of Generations, which was what, like 2293, 95, something like that? I think Undiscovered Country was 93. So the beginning of Generations would have been at least 95. Yeah, 95, And she's fresh 96. out of the Academy, so she would be, what, 21, 22? Mm-hmm. 
So you're talking 2270 to 75. And this is still 2263, according to the on-screen information. So it would be Damora's older sister, unless just Damora was born earlier in this timeline. Yeah, well, obvi- obviously a lot of that is ambiguous. And again, this is 2263, which is still before the original series. Yeah. Well, we'll get into that later, too. So, a lot of things get accelerated. We'll, we'll get into that when we get into another aspect of the plot. The other thing is that I know that their goal was not to sort of overplay or dwell on the fact that Suu is gay because they don't want to make it out like it's something unusual or something to be remarked upon. Well, again, we don't technically know that's Demora. We don't technically technically know if Sulu is, you know, pan or bi or whatever, but... We don't technically know that that's Sulu's partner. All we know is that it's a guy with a little girl. We can assume it's his daughter since Sulu has a picture of her, but he could have a picture of a niece. He could have a picture of a younger sister. Maybe that's Sulu's brother with their very younger sister. Maybe that's Sulu's cousin. Maybe that's Sulu's brother with his daughter. Sulu and this guy don't have any sort of interaction to suggest that they're actually in a romantic relationship either. Well, I was just going to say, if that's if you're going to assume that, that could be Sulu's brother or brother-in-law or whatever, he is awfully handsy with him. Is he? Yeah. Do they do anything other than like put their arms across each other's shoulders? I mean, they don't even hug. They certainly don't kiss or anything. They don't do anything to suggest they're actually in a romantic relationship. They went so far on the underplay it so that you don't make it something remarkable that I think they went too far into actually not even showing it. No, they put their arms around each other's waists in a way that I think was pretty obvious. Mm. I wish it would have been a little more obvious. Speaking again about our particular experience watching the movie, it was obvious for the guy in the row in back of us to blurt out, What? Really? You didn't catch that? I did not notice that. Oh yeah, a guy right in, right in back of us blurted out, What? <laughs> he went in fresh. <laughs> I guess. I, I was actually thinking that it would have been better if it had come up in dialogue rather than just showing that one moment. Because, like I said, that moment wasn't enough for me. I wish they would have been a little more explicit with it. I was thinking it would have been better for it to come up in dialogue, like if they were all talking about their families, you know? Because Kirk has this voiceover about the families, but they could have had, like, you know, a scene where Kirk says, I'll have to, once we get into base, I'm going to talk to my mother, and Spock says, I have a communique waiting from my father on New Vulcan, and then Sulu could mention, you know, my husband's waiting for me, he brought our daughter from Earth, we're going to spend shore leave together. That would have been sort of more explicit about it without making it something unique and remarkable. Yeah, that certainly would have been more explicit, but I'm fine with what they did, though, as far as just finally having (laughs) an explicitly queer person in Star Trek. Aside from a couple of, like, suggestions and gestures. Yeah. That was basically my reaction from the time that the news got out about it, when everyone exploded. Oh, lord. People's reactions to that were so ridiculous, on both sides, frankly, because that whole thing with George Takei just came off so fucking weird to me. I'm kind of disappointed in Takei. I'm not even disappointed in him, I'm disappointed in everyone else. Everyone else seemed to have this reaction like, well, that's his character, and if he says the character shouldn't be gay, everyone else is beholden to what he says about the character. That's not his character. It's not even Gene Roddenberry's character. 
I mean, Gene Roddenberry, if you're going to say it's anyone's character, it's Gene Roddenberry's, but it's not Gene Roddenberry's. It's Paramount Viacom's character. They can do whatever the fuck they want with them. They're not beholden to Roddenberry, not after 1979 at least. They fired Roddenberry while he was still alive. They're certainly not beholden to his wishes now that he's dead. And they're not beholden to the actor they happened to hire to play the guy for three seasons. It's not his character any more than any of the characters belong to actors. I thought we settled this in 2009 when we figured out we could bring in new people to play the characters. Uh, not to mention that whatever Gene Roddenberry's vision is or was, was highly malleable. Yeah. And could basically be all things to all people. You know, he had some pretty big shifts over the course of his career with Star Trek, so... But on to Kay's point, he had this whole thing about... He seemed to be assuming that because they couldn't make Sulu gay in the 1960s, which of course they couldn't, it was the frickin' 60s. Even later on you couldn't unless you wanted him to be, um, Billy Crystal in Soap. Or Nathan Lane in yeah, the or entire Harvey, 1990s. Yeah, or Harvey Firestein. <laughs> I mean, Takei seemed to think that because they couldn't make Sulu gay while he was still playing him, that that meant that he was playing a character that was straight. And, somehow, that if Sulu is gay in the new movie, that means that the character he was playing for so many years was closeted. Which is insane. I, I, I don't get how you really reach that conclusion, aside from, you know, just a general blanket statement of, you know, he's from another generation. <laughs> Which I don't want to be so dismissive, because Takei has been genuinely progressive in some ways. Yeah, Takei did seem to be operating under the assumption that anyone that wasn't shown visibly on screen to be gay must obviously have been straight. Which is an assumption that if it weren't being made by a gay man, we would be much more critical of. Exactly. I mean, in his one of his interviews or statements, and I grant that some of that got taken out of context, but whatever... He had a line about, you know, Sulu, who had always been straight. And I certainly don't remember the episode where he said he was. The Mirror Sulu had an interest in Uhura? Yeah, Mirror Sulu hit on Uhura once. But then again, as we've seen from the Deep Space Nine Mirror Universe episodes, everyone's sexuality in the Mirror Universe is backwards. Therefore, Mirror Sulu hitting on Uhura could in fact be argued to be on-screen evidence that regular Universe Sulu was gay. There you go. It's canon. <laughs> Super canon. <laughs> it's a weird three-dimensional chess way of making Sulu gay on screen. Even Takei has backtracked a little bit. Not really. The headlines said he backtracked. But when you read his actual statements, he didn't actually change his position. I Which see. is fine. He can. He's entitled to that position. I'm not arguing that, you know, he's... I think he's wrong in part, but he can have whatever opinion about the thing that he wants to have. I'm just arguing about his ownership of the character of Sulu. I don't understand why everyone makes this assumption, why people make this argument. People who are progressive and who have criticized the franchise for not having a gay character now make the statement, you know, well, they're overruling Sulu or... Well, no, actually, yeah, they say that. They're overruling Sulu, as if George Takei is Sulu. George Takei is an actor who's hired to play a part. He has no more ownership over that role than William Shatner has ownership over the role of Kirk. 
Which, like I said, I thought we settled this in 2009 when they brought in someone who wasn't George Takei to play Sulu. Yeah, well, in terms of Star Trek fandom, the actors do kind of take on... I don't want to say ownership because, I mean, you're right, on a technical level, it's not ownership, but... Well, George Takei is saying well, we should hold true to Gene Roddenberry's original vision of the character, which can even be argued is that his original vision of the character or is that just what he had to do because it was 1966. But on the other hand, when Gene Roddenberry got fired off the franchise, George Takei still showed up and played Sulu in Star Trek 2, and Star Trek 3, and Star Trek 4, and Star Trek 5, and Star Trek 6, and the Voyager episode flashback. He, he didn't, like, say, no, I won't be in Wrath of Khan because you're not holding to Gene Roddenberry's original vision. He, he still showed up and did the part and cast the check. Yeah, no, he said, I won't be in Wrath of Khan because I don't have enough lines, and then they massaged him into doing it. Well, Gene Roddenberry's original vision was for him to not have very many lines, because Kirk and Spock and McCoy were the stars. Why didn't he hold true to Roddenberry's original vision then? Um, okay, I, I think this is getting a little bit away from us. <laughs> um, certainly, as a gay man himself, he's entitled to that opinion, and that's fine, I guess. But I think it's badly, badly needed to have some queer characters in these movies and in Star Trek in general. There, there has been a pronounced dearth that we've mentioned talking about a few of these movies. Yeah, has Rick Berman come out with a statement about gay Sulu? Not that I've seen. <laughs> I don't know that Rick Berman takes much ownership of Sulu. <laughs> I suppose. But he's the one a lot of people lay the blame at the feet of for why there was never a gay character on 1990s Star Trek. Yeah. But to have, you know, some representation, even in the smallest little bit, still means a lot to a lot of people. And I've never really been the sort of person who has, like, felt an ache of a lack of representation in Star Trek. Because Star Trek kind of, as a part of my life, comes before, like lots of elements of my identity, so it, it predated a lot of that, so I, I was never really, like, feeling an ache of, oh, why isn't there anyone like me in this particular way in Star Trek? But there are people who do, and there are people who have, and I've seen lots of people online being, you know, inspired and bolstered by even this little, little bit that was put in this movie. And for their sakes, I'm really glad it's there. Yeah, it's obviously long overdue, and I'm glad they did it with an existing character. Yes. Because, for one thing, if you bring in a brand new character, then really there's no reason for them to exist other than to be the gay character. Exactly. And so that creates all sorts of problems. That was another point that Takei had. He said they should introduce a new character who's gay, and I mean... They should have that too, but if you do that with everything else that's going on in the movie, that's less, here's this gay character who is someone we're already familiar with and already like because they're one of the main cast members, and more, here is Ensign Bruce. Whether or not he's played by Harvey Firestein or some equivalent, it would have that um, stink of tokenism. No matter how well the character would actually be written. And, you know, there are characters introduced in this movie. Any of them could be gay. Or that's, pan or bi or whatever. Well, that's sort of... That gets back to the sort of earlier point where anyone that's not actually shown on screen kissing someone of the same sex, we just assume they're straight. How do we know Jayla isn't gay? Exactly. How do we know Chekhov isn't gay? Yeah. 
Scotty and Kinzer, personally, they've looked like an old married couple to me since the 09 movie. Well, that, that was part of Simon Pegg's response to the Takei controversy, which everything got blown out of proportion there. I mean, I mean, a lot of that was headlines and clickbait, but mm. part of Simon Pegg's response, in addition to the parallel universe stuff that I know you're yankering to talk about, was that... I mean, obviously Jim Kirk is pansexual, right? He has sex with cat people. You think a dude would be too much for him? You would think, but you could... We've seen him on screen trying to hit on every woman who comes within 15 feet of him, and he's never done that to a dude. Yeah, that's true. So, I'd say original timeline, Kirk, you can make a better argument for being pansexual. Then again, you know... Maybe he's trying to be aggressively heterosexual because he thinks he has to. But then again, in the 2260s, why would he think he has to be? Yeah, that's a whole dynamic that I don't want in these movies. This is this is yeah. set in the utopian future of the Federation. There should not be closets. In that case, we have to take at face value that he tries to hit on every woman within 15 feet of him and no guys. I suppose, to that extent. But everyone we see isn't straight until proven otherwise. There's lots of people that we've never seen with a romantic interest. You know, Jayla, Chekhov, everyone that passes by in the background. We don't know what, if any, romantic interest any of these people have. But the other reason, going way back to about five, two, five or ten points ago, the other reason why I like that it was an existing character that they showed was not straight is that now there's been a gay character since 2009. Mm -hmm. Not just there's a gay character now. There's been a gay character since the 2009 movie. There's been a gay character for seven years now. Yeah, exactly. And really, when you think about the main cast, Sulu is probably the best one to do it with. Well, we dodged a bullet that they didn't do it with Chekhov. I was trying to think of the best way to phrase that. <laughs> I know there's a whole uproar because a lot of gay characters... I keep using the word gay to mean not straight because I don't want to say not straight and I don't feel comfortable saying the word that most not straight people use. Mm -hmm. But I don't mean to imply strictly homosexual men when I use that word. I just want to do, you, you, make you, that clear. You can use the acronym or whatever. It, it's okay. The acronym sort of gets out of hand because you keep adding letters for more and more identities until you have like a 15 character acronym. I've settled on eight by now, but that's me. Anyway, anyway, that's something that's caused a lot of uproar lately because a lot of TV shows, the new thing in TV shows is anyone can die. We're just going to kill off characters in all of our big finale episodes. And it seems that recently a whole lot of those characters that randomly die happen to randomly be the not straight ones. Yes. So I know there's been a lot of sort of anger from gay people over all the gay characters being killed. And so... Yes, it's a good thing they didn't pick Chekhov to be the one to make gay. Yeah, that would have been completely unintentional, but still most unfortunate. Yes. That wouldn't have been an indictment of them that it happened that way, but it would have been horribly unfortunate. Yeah. Even right. more horribly unfortunate than the death of Anton Yelchin already is. Yeah, and I mean, I can also see the point that doing it with Sulu pretty much just because of George Takei is a little trite. You know, it's a little convenient. 
And all the stuff about wanting to be a tribute to Takei when Takei didn't want them to do it is also a little uncomfortable. Yeah, well, it's not a tribute to him if he doesn't want it done. So I'm assuming the idea came about to use Sulu as a tribute to George Takei, but since he doesn't want it, it ends up not being so. Yeah, basically. You know, unless he pulls a Roddenberry. You know, Roddenberry hated Star Trek 2 until it came out and everyone loved it. And then he said, oh, yes, Star Trek. Everyone likes my Star Trek. So, you know. Yeah, you never know. Watch this space. He is interested in holding true to Roddenberry's legacy, right? Roddenberry's legacy is to badmouth anything he's not involved in until it becomes popular and then try to claim involvement in it. Yes, well, we'll see how popular this movie winds up being. But even aside from that, I think it kind of makes the most sense with Sulu because you have the pre-existing relationship between Spock and Uhura and they do break up in this movie, maybe, sort of. But to have one of them get into a new relationship already would feel a bit rushed. Yeah. Plus the entire reason Spock broke up is so that he could father more Vulcans, which wouldn't really work in a homosexual relationship. It's the future, dude. (laughs) And McCoy in a relationship always feels just a little bit wrong, doesn't it? Even when they did it in Toast. Yeah, McCoy is just... McCoy is too irascible to really look good in a romantic storyline. His first love is medicine. His first love is annoyance. (laughs) His first love is being a doctor and not anything else. Damn it, won't you people leave me alone? (laughs) So, yes. Uh, That's that's our hot take on Gulu. Gulu. I'm going to try to stop calling it Gulu now. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the idea of having a a smushed-together ship name for Sulu and Gainus. No, I know, I, I, I know, I'm... (laughs) <laughs> I'm being ironic, it's okay. That's sort of like everyone's favorite Hunger Games ship, Cat in her own damn self. <laughs> I ship pretty much everyone with their own damn selves. <laughs> Except me, I guess. Oh, they finally have a gay relationship after 50 years and you want to break them up so Sue can be with his own damn self. You homophobic bastard! Anyway... The movie. (laughs) We're deep in our spoiler section now. You want to talk about the movie? Well, if you want to sort of continue with the stream of consciousness conversation. Uh, That's how we do. Since this is our 25th podcast anniversary. Yes. This is the Len Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular episode 25. In honor of our first episode, I have made a reference back to the Hunger Games franchise, which is sort of a little bit apropos because I read something very interesting just the other day. There was an article where Simon Pegg was doing an interview, you know, one of these things where he tries to hype up the movie and get people to go watch it. And Simon Pegg said that as they were writing this film, they based the character of Jayla on the character Jennifer Lawrence plays in the movie Winter's Bone. I don't know if you've ever seen Winter's Bone. After seeing that quote, I meant to get to it sometime this week. Unfortunately, I did not. Yeah, I've never seen it either, so I can't speak to the parallel. But I did appreciate Simon Pegg's effort to let us make a callback to our first episode by bringing Jennifer Lawrence into the new Star Trek movie. 
Yes, I salute you, sir. In fact, according to Simon Pegg, that is where the name of the character comes from, where as they were developing the character, they based it a lot on Jennifer Lawrence's character in Winter's Bone. Apparently she plays a very fierce, independent character who's had to fend for herself, and they incorporated a lot of those aspects into Jayla. And according to this interview with Simon Pegg, while they were developing the character, they started calling her J-Law after Jennifer Lawrence, and that eventually developed into the name Jayla. So thank you, Simon Pegg, for giving us that callback to our first episode here on the Silver Podcast anniversary episode of the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. You keep mispronouncing the name of our podcast. I mispronounce things. It's what I do. So, about Jayla, whose naming, of course, is in the rich Star Trek tradition going all the way back to Nagilam. <laughs> Uh, let's talk a little bit about her character, because I think she was a really nice addition to the movie, even aside from the uh, I-have-things-that-are-convenient-to-the-plot aspect of her character. Things by which you mean an entire starship? I knew from, from trailers and photos that were released and various things that they would wind up on this other ship, the Franklin, over the course of the movie. And I think the way they actually did it in the movie was pretty cool. Where this starship that's crashed on this planet becomes like an old cave or something with all these mysterious things in it. And, and this woman who is scavenging and, and trying to, you know, fend for herself lives in this, like, interconnected set of caves, almost, that turns out to be an entire ship. I just think that idea is really cool. And the way that it plays into her character as well. And, and of course, uh, she brings out one of the themes of the movie, you know, she keeps calling the ship my house. Yeah. You know, including the great line, take my house and make it fly. No, I think the better line is when they get attacked later and she says, my house is breaking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Did you notice? I'm just going to throw this in here. Did you notice the dedication plaque for the USS Franklin? I saw it, but I didn't get a chance to read it before they flashed on to something else. I didn't get to read the whole thing, but I did notice that it identified the USS Franklin as Starship class. Oh, that's I appreciated good. that. Oh, that's good. This movie is full of callbacks to other Star Treks. Oh yeah, totally. It, it, Darkness did a little bit of that too, but Darkness was more of a straight remake of some earlier Star Trek, so they didn't go so heavy with the small callbacks. This movie is full of small callbacks. Yeah, Darkness had lots of scenes where they read the script for The Wrath of Khan and recited it. And had some other structural and, and stylistic callbacks. The 09 movie had a whole lot of little stylistic things. Sound effects, lighting designs, yeah. that kind o of thing. 09 had sound effects and lighting and small things to try to link it with the old one. Yeah. This movie, different from 09 and different from Darkness, has a lot of just small little references and callbacks that... Don't serve to try to identify it with the old, but just serve as sort of a fun little callback for people to go, hey, look at that. Exactly. It, it's got a lot of continuity references. Yeah. In a way that doesn't become continuity porn. Because they are just little things that are tossed off like that. And, you know, if you get it, it's really cool. And if you don't, it's not what the movie's about. You can, you know, we move on. Yeah, I, I imagine the number of people who, who are happy to notice that the dedication plaque identifies the USS Franklin as Starship class is a fairly low percentage of the audience. 
Probably. But I fucking loved it. Yeah, that's cool. And also with the Franklin there, and with the Franklin being an older ship, a lot of those continuity references are kind of tying this time frame with Enterprise. Yeah. Where you get the Franklin uniforms that are kind of halfway between the Enterprise uniforms and Starfleet uniforms as we know them. Well, there were a couple of different Franklin uniforms. Because in the old video footage, they show the people wearing jumpsuits very similar to the uniforms they wore in Enterprise. But when everyone starts going on to the Franklin, they start getting these, like, jackets. They start wearing these uniform jackets that are different from the old Enterprise uniforms. Before we move completely off of Jayla, which we kind of already did, but still. We're sort of jumping from topic to topic here. I know, but I, I wanted to talk about one of the themes of this movie. She keeps calling the ship my house. And, you know, who lives in a house... Your family lives in a house. That ties into all the stuff that this movie is doing about the crew as a family. And the things that were running through darkness as well. Yeah, about, I was going to say. Exactly, about you're part of the family, it's nice to have a family. And that sort of um, found family, adopted family, that people like in a lot of stories. And a lot of sci-fi franchises, too. That these recent movies have really, really tied into. As a way to bring the ensemble together. I mean, we talked about in the 09 movie how everyone was like moving the hands of fate around to bring the crew together as we know it. And then, since then, they've gone to great lengths to paint them as this family. And so to have them come together in this house is just perfect, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it, it reminded me of um, Kirk's monologue at the beginning of Star Trek Three about how, with so much of the crew offloaded, it feels like a house after all the children have gone. Yeah. So that really, I think, ties together very well. I did appreciate... Because one of the things that kind of bugged me was the design of the Franklin. I mean, going into the movie. Because... They showed the Franklin in a bunch of, like, pre-release stuff. And I didn't really like the design of the Akira Prize. I didn't think it was a good Starship design for that era of history. For those unfamiliar, that's the derisive name for the NX-class in Enterprise. That looks like the Akira class from First Contact. This is the one time I'm going to explain a joke. I didn't realize it was a derisive name. Although, I don't object. <laughs> Now learning that it's a derisive name, I'm going to continue using the name anyway. Well, no, the non-derisive name is NX Class. Oh, fuck that shit. I know, but still. I didn't like that design at all. The saucer was all lumpy and not circular. It That early stage of development should have had a relatively simple-looking design, you know? And instead, they sort of went the other way. It looked much more like a post-next-generation ship rather than a pre-original series ship. And so I didn't like the design at all. And then to see it, like, essentially recreated with the Franklin, I was... On the one hand, I try not to let myself get bogged down and stuff like that anymore. But on the other hand, I didn't really like that they were trying to mirror that design. I didn't like that, like the next generation of Starfleet ship was going to mirror this design from Enterprise, and I wasn't sure why they were doing that, and why would they match that design so closely when they'd had such different designs? When they showed, like, the Starbase in Star Trek 09, before they all left for Vulcan, they had a bunch of different kind of designs of ships, and the Enterprise in all the movies was 
sort of similar to the original Enterprise, and so why would they switch to this thing that looks like the Akira Prize? I didn't understand that, and I didn't like it, and I didn't like the original design, so I didn't like bringing back that design. And then they explain, oh, this is a ship from that era of history, and so we made it look like this as a callback to the series Enterprise, where the ship looked like this. And that, it explains it so well, it actually makes sense, and I appreciate that it makes sense. And it's not just this random thing that's stupid and I don't like it. I appreciate that there's a reason behind it and that it makes sense and that there's a reason they did this rather than just, hey, let's do this, you know? Also, that general shape of Starship is probably the most likely to be able to survive a crash landing on a planet because the bottom is kind of flat compared to pretty much any other Starship. Well... I don't know if you want to get too far into the starship crashes on a planet, then sits decaying for a hundred years, but we can still fly it. Hey, Scotty's good. Also, what was with that whole, we need to reach terminal velocity before we can take off? Like, you do that with airplanes because you need airflow over the wings. You don't have to do that with a starship. Yeah, that was just kind of to have another tense moment in I that part of the movie. It would have been one thing if they had just said, you know, we can't take off from the ground because this ship wasn't designed to take off from the ground. So if we can get off the cliff and into midair, then we can launch the engines and start flying. That would have been fine. They could have done that. But the whole, we need to achieve terminal velocity in the fall. A, you don't have wings that you need to get airflow over to generate lift. B, you're not going to reach terminal velocity scraping your way down a mountain. There's too much friction there. C, you're not going to reach terminal velocity when you keep crashing into cliffs on your way down the mountain. That doesn't increase your the velocity of your fall. It only risks breaching your hull. That whole thing was sort of... I didn't like the idea behind that. I thought they could have done that better and more plausibly. I suppose. It also echoed the end of Into Darkness when the ship kind of disappeared under the tree line from when the Enterprise disappeared under the clouds and then triumphantly rose back up mm. when, when yeah, they, they got they, power back. They could have done that same thing with all of that bullshit about we have to hit terminal velocity. Yeah, true. You know, they could have just, oh, we need to get off the ground into midair before the engines will work properly. Well, let's use the impulse engines to nudge ourselves over the cliff into midair. Also, of course, being in a J.J. Abrams-produced movie, it brought to mind for me the scene in Lost where they jumpstart the van by sending it down the mountain. (laughs) (laughs) That also, you know, it was abandoned for many years and they found it and sort of got it going. Yes, exactly. Is this the Dharma starship? It turns out that the guy from the starship was the head of the others. Spoilers. <laughs> uh, well, we're, we're in the spoiler section now. You want to talk about the whole Franklin storyline? Well, I did say on the last episode that I didn't understand why they went to the trouble of casting a well-known actor like Idris Elba to play the villain if they were going to bury him under 17 layers of latex makeup. And it turns out also modify his voice heavily. And give him this sort of modified, stilted vocal delivery throughout most of the movie. As it turns out, there were some scenes he got to play without makeup where you actually saw Idris Elba and heard the line delivery of the acting quality of Idris Elba. But still, it was a very small percentage of that role. I kind of feel like Idris Elba is wasted in that role. Well, Star Trek movie villains continue to be a little bit one-note. Yeah, but even Eric Bana and 
Benihana counterinsurgency. They got to play their characters, you know, they got to play every scene, they got to put their acting into every bit. Idris Elba didn't get to do that until, like, the last 20 minutes. True. I'm glad he at least did, though. Yeah, that was, that was good. I think there was one of the TV ads or one of the internet ads or something that the marketing department put out recently that completely spoiled that point at the end of the movie. I didn't see it because I saw Simon Pegg and uh, Justin Lin and other people saying, don't watch the latest ad. Well, yeah, because the marketing department is sitting there saying, we've got Idris Elba in this movie and he's under 17 layers of makeup. How do we market the fact that we've got Idris Elba in the movie? Yeah, I, I do feel that he didn't get quite enough time as Idris Elba at the end of the movie. I, I wish, like I was saying before about the one thing it was missing was a Kirk speech. You know, <laughs> I, I, I wish there had been more of an explicit, like, moral debate. Well, what you're looking for there is a Picard scene. I suppose, but even then, if it had been something like, if he had made his case as much as Captain Ron Tracy did. Hmm. You know, or any angry Commodore or ambassador, you know, for, for Kirk to really rebut with his fists and with his philosophy. I mean, there's a little bit of philosophical import that mm. you can get into with this. They do, they do it a little bit in the midst of the fight, but they don't really dwell on it or get very much into arguing back and forth about it. Right. Um, we mentioned in our episode about the trailer, uh, the line, uh, this is where the frontier pushes back, seemed to be important uh, for what the movie was going to be about. And that message, I think, I mean, wasn't dealt with as much as I maybe might have preferred, because, again, they're, they're, they're not making next-gen episodes, they're not making, like, deep, thoughtful movies, but also, it gets a little muddled when the person in the frontier pushing back is not from the frontier. Yeah. That's, you know, another kind of colonizing influence pushing back against the idea of exploring and colonizing deep space. You know, there's a lot to go into if it had actually been natives pushing back against Federation expansionism, saying, you know, you style yourselves as benign explorers, but that's not the influence that you have everywhere. You know, they could bring up conflicts with the Klingons and others that the Federation and Starfleet kind of bring with them. I'm fantasy booking the movie now. But what we have in this movie instead is a conflict at the heart of Star Trek because it wasn't really intended to be a conflict in Star Trek. It was kind of sewn in there between explorers and the military. You know, completely going to the end of the movie here, but, you know, we have Idris Elba's captain, who never wanted to be a captain, all he wanted to be was a soldier, acting as a soldier and trying to, you know, exterminate the Enterprise and exterminate the Starbase Yorktown and kind of push back in that way on Starfleet's mission of exploration as opposed to a mission of peacekeeping or some such. And that's a conflict that's always been in Star Trek in a way between the Gene Roddenberry episodes in the original series and the Gene Kuhn and Dorothy Fontana episodes. 
that's that's a little reductive, but there there were those kind of binary tones in the original series, and that has kind of laced its way throughout the franchise. You know, it went way farther in the direction of peaceful, egalitarian exploration for Next Generation because of Gene Roddenberry's personal uh, journey over the course of the 70s. Meanwhile, when Roddenberry got booted off the movies, they became a lot more military. And then later on in DS9, you had, you know, the whole war storyline. And so that's kind of a tension that's always been there. And this movie is going right at that tension for a little while. Yeah, is it really? I mean, I know that these movies say a couple of times they try to make the point that Starfleet isn't military, besides the fact that they have an academy and ranks and take orders and all of that. Scotty keeps trying to say that they're not military, and they try to draw the distinction where this person was a military, and then he got put into Starfleet and didn't like it. Whatever. I'm not sure I completely understand what the conflict between non-military Starfleet and military is supposed to be in this instance. Is he just... Angry that he doesn't have anyone new to fight a war against? Oh, now we're exploring and we're not slaughtering the people that we meet. Damn it, I want to be a soldier. You know, if this is a, a conflict between non-military Starfleet and his military thinking, they're casting his military thinking as the absolute worst kind of militaristic thinking. That if he's not going out there and killing enemies, then he's not doing his job as a soldier. And if there are no more enemies to kill, well, we better find some enemies for me to kill because I'm a soldier. Well, it could also be kind of a few good men moment, like we mentioned with Admiral Robocop in Darkness, where, you know, he mentions fighting the Zindi, fighting the Romulan War, before Starfleet was formed. And then Starfleet is formed, and they slap a captain's rank on him and tell him to go explore, when that's not who he was, and that's not the job he thought he had. Hmm. You know, it's the conflict of a warrior who has been brought up as a warrior and succeeded as a warrior if he made it through the whole Zindi conflict and the whole Romulan War, but is then put into a different role. And maybe thinks that as the Federation forms and Starfleet kind of reforms itself for a newly developing galactic community, that it's kind of denying what it's been. And I'm adding a lot to what's actually in the movie, <laughs> but I, I can easily see that being the viewpoint that sending out ships for peaceful exploration is assuming that the galaxy is more peaceful than it is, and what we need is warriors, which in a way was the was the villain's viewpoint in the last movie as well. Well, it was a little different in the last movie in that there was an existing belligerent adversary, and there is an argument to be made. What do you do with a belligerent adversary? Do you try to placate them and broker a tenuous peace, or do you just go to war with them because you're going to have to go to war with them eventually and you may as well do it on your terms. Mm. That's sort of the argument about Saddam Hussein. But what you're saying is that this captain, former Marine, Balthazar Edison, was of the opinion that everyone is Saddam Hussein. Everyone is the Klingons. Everyone we meet out there is a potential enemy who we would be better off attacking on our own terms right now. And that he didn't like that Starfleet didn't do that. Mm. And so then what's his goal in 
amassing this giant swarm of attack ships and using it to destroy the starbase Yorktown? Is he trying to get Starfleet to pivot itself onto more of a war footing? Or is he just killing people because he's the villain? Well, he also says he's targeting the Starbase specifically because it's a very diverse community. You know, he specifically mentions all these Federation species living together in this place, in this community. You know, so he's going after diversity, too. So he's also a speciesist. He's Earth First? Maybe. Was that the name of the organization from the penultimate Enterprise episode? Earth First? Terra Prime. It was in Latin. In in the novels, it was the Keep Earth Human League. Mm. Or in a novel, at least. Speaking of which, this movie did have a lot of parallels to novels. Did you notice that like I did? Really? Well, the um, the whole idea of an Akira Prize-era Starfleet ship being destroyed on this alien world, but the captain surviving and surviving through this alien technology and surviving into the modern day... That storyline also happens in the Star Trek Destiny trilogy of novels written by David Mack several years ago, where Captain... Spoilers! <laughs> where Captain Hernandez of the Columbia survives through to the 2370s and is involved with this alien race's contact with the Enterprise-E crew. So there's that aspect of it. Also... As we were just talking about, Balthazar Edison's, his sort of objection to the unity between races in the Federation is reminiscent of racist Earth organizations that have appeared in a few novels. The one that leaps to my mind is the aforementioned Keep Earth Human League from, I believe, the novel Steric. Is that where the Keep Earth Human League was? You don't mm. remember what I'm talking about. I think it was from that novel. It's from, from one of the novels. So that idea that there are humans that chafe against the unity with alien races. And Captain Edison is very much from the era of the Terra Prime movement. I suppose, yeah. I wonder if there's some unnamed African-American Mako in some episode of Enterprise that everyone is going to say is Captain Edison now. On a similar note, I don't think Cupcake was in this movie. I didn't notice him at least. I saw someone doing an interview with the actor, so I think he might have been in there somewhere. I hope he lived. Oh yeah, we haven't even gotten into casualties in this movie. Well... I mean, the whole ship is destroyed, all the escape pods are attacked, there's people in this prisoner camp, and they beam the survivors out and they somehow all fit on the Franklin. Nobody ever mentions how many people died during the course of all of this. And you'd think with everything that's going on with Kirk in this movie, that that would weigh pretty heavily on him too. And we'll get to what's going on with Kirk in this movie um, after our break, I think. According to what I've been able to find, Cupcake is in Star Trek Beyond, although it doesn't say anywhere that I've seen where he appears in the movie or what he does in the movie. But everything I've seen says that he is indeed there somewhere. Yeah, the article I saw with the actor who plays Cupcake was about how he was a little surprised that he made it to Beyond because apparently he was supposed to die in darkness. Yeah, he was supposed to like be killed by one of the Klingons or something. Mm. 
We are going to talk about good old Captain Kirk. We're going to talk about all of our other main ensemble cast members. We are going to talk about whatever else we can think of for this movie. But we are going to do that after we listen to some ads for wrestling podcasts. So we will catch you after the break. paid for by the following what's up everybody this is kevin kelly make sure you check out every episode of the kevin kelly show right here on the place to be nation place to be nation.com the kevin kelly show every episode is a winner at least we hope place to be nations justin rosero here in addition to the kevin kelly show we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on itunes stitcher google play and place to be nation.com and we now offer them to you on two great feeds as well on the place to be podcast feed you can check out scott Criscolo and me on the mothership the place to be podcast with our famous vintage vault pay-per-view reviews ptbn also covers current day wrestling with clotheslines and headlines main event mission indie possible in our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on wwe nxt and ring of honor super shows Relive Wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series led by Ben Morse and the Dangerous Alliance Wrestling Podcast as we dive into various subjects in the form of exercises and games. We also have sports covered, too, with the Sports Lounge, the TJ McLoon Show, and NBA Team Podcast. On our brand new PTB Pop Podcast feed, we offer great shows such as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, Lucha Undead, as well as a veritable podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, and Imaginary Stories. Subscribe to both feeds on iTunes, and be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All these shows are available on PlaySimation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. Be sure to check out on the right-hand side of the site for details on how to support the site when you shop at Amazon and download our free Place to Be Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and Scott Keats' blog of doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaySimation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. This is Parv, and I'm here to tell you to listen and subscribe to the pro wrestling only Place to Be Nation podcast network. That's the PWO PTBN podcast network, where you'll find a ton of in depth shows done by hardcore fans. We've got Chris Zellner's One Two Punch of Exile on Bad Street, and with David Bickenspan, a smash hit between the sheets. We've got Wrestling Culture with Dylan Hales and Dave Musgrave. Goodwill Wrestling and the reaction shows with good old Will from Texas. We got This Week in Wrestling with my man Pete and Johnny Sorrow. Stephen Graham and Tim Livingston's Pro Wrestling Super Show. Tag Teams Back Again with Kelly and Marty Slees. And a ton of other great shows too. And of course there's Titans of Wrestling and Where the Big Boys Play with yours truly and some dude from down south called Chad. PWO. 
PTBN Podcast Network. Scott and we are talking about Star Trek Beyond. Getting back into this, I want to talk about the Star Trek franchise's relation with the unknown and the frontier, which it goes into a little bit in this movie because in any of these situations, the frontier is the source of threat, you know? This alien technology on this alien planet is what transforms Captain Baltazar Edison into Krall and turns a guy who maybe has a misanthropic mentality into this dude who wants to kill however many people are on the Starbase or wherever else he's going to go after that. But also, a very important part of Star Trek is the strange new worlds, the new civilizations, the boldly going, the sense of wonder in the unknown and in exploration, which is a badly needed antithesis to the threat of the unknown. And that's why I think it's very important in this movie to look at the journey that Kirk takes throughout this movie. You know, he starts off a little bored with all this exploration because they're they're going to all these places, they're meeting all these alien races, and it's all becoming a little episodic to him and a little boring. And by the end of the movie, he's regained that sense of wonder. He's, he's regained that thing that is fundamental to so many people's ideas of Star Trek. You know, he's ready to go on that trek again. So what do you think about the journey that Kirk has in this movie? I think it's very interesting. As you pointed out, this is still pre-original series. They say on screen this is 2263, so it's actually Kirk's birthday in the movie, so Kirk is just turning 30, and they're ready to make him a vice admiral. <laughs> Things move fast in this timeline. I mean... But yeah, that's something else that's very interesting, considering what we know of Kirk's characterization in the Prime timeline, where several movies were spent reiterating and eventually resolving the idea that becoming an admiral and getting a desk job is fundamentally not who Jim Kirk is. And then at the beginning of this movie, he's really genuinely thinking about it. In a, in a way that retroactively kind of explains a little bit about how you think someone like Jim Kirk from the original series would become a boring dude with a desk job. Because that never seemed like him, and that's why so many of the movies are spent having all the characters tell him that's not who he is. But you see in this movie, ex explore it a little more how he might get there. Well, there's two sides to it. On the one hand, they show that he's sort of becoming bored with the captaincy of, you know, go here and talk to these people, and then go there and talk to these people, or go here and scan a nebula, or go there and 
see what the hell is there, that it's sort of becoming rote. I don't understand how he's going to get away from that sort of repetitiveness by being the admiral in charge of a starbase. Well, there are so many different people there, I, I guess, that would be part of it. He could hang out with Sulu's husband. Sulu going to be okay with that? How are they hanging out? Being bros. On the other hand, it seems like what Kirk learns or relearns in this movie is what Kirk learned in the original timeline, what he tried to explain to Picard. That don't leave that chair in the middle of the bridge, because while you're there, you can make a difference. And that seems to be something Kirk has forgotten at the beginning of this movie, where everything just sort of becomes a monotony. It feels like any other job. You know, that whole starting sequence could be a dude that works in an office who's bored with his life. You know, he opens his closet and it's 14 of the same gray suit jacket next to each other instead of 14 of the same golden uniform top. You know, that could be any movie about a schlub who works in an office who then gets dragged off on an adventure and learns a new appreciation for life. Except in this instance, the adventure he gets dragged off on is the job he already has. And he just seems to have forgotten that somehow. Yeah, there's a whole perspective on it that he's allowed himself to lose, in a way. And, and that he has to regain. And being in that chair and making a difference is exactly what Captain Edison didn't want to do. And and so there's that contrast that kind of shows him the power that he could have to do good. Man, that sounds trite as hell. <laughs> I'm still not entirely sure I understand what Edison actually wanted, unless he was just warmongering. So it's kind of hard for me to draw a compare and contrast between him and Kirk when I don't entirely understand his motivation or his goals. In the... 2100s or at the present time of this movie. I mean, I guess I understand the basis of a military person chafing at this new Starfleet role he's been shunted into, but I don't entirely understand what he wanted instead. Because if he's objecting to being on this starship, because I don't belong in this ship, I'm a soldier, well, what does a soldier of that mentality do when there is not a war? Uh, drill... Then drill. Then drill. We could have done that with the security staff. Uh, I suppose. You know, so from that perspective, I don't entirely understand what he wants at that time. Did he want to go out and fight people in a war? Did he want to go start a war so that he could fight in a war because he's a soldier? So I don't entirely understand what he wanted at that point, And so I can't speak intelligently on a compare and contrast between that and where Kirk is at the beginning of this movie. I think it is sort of interesting of that Kirk is sort of reflecting and questioning why he joined Starfleet in the first place. Because you could easily go back and argue that he had no business joining in the first place. He's there for entirely the wrong reasons. And he has entirely the wrong goals. You know, he basically joined to try to live up to the memory of a, the father that he never knew and never met and never remembered. And just to prove Captain Pike wrong. Just out of stubbornness. So you could argue that he has every wrong reason for being there in the first place, and so it's kind of interesting to see him questioning that himself. I think it actually speaks to a level of maturity that he's reached, that he's asking those questions. Yeah, definitely. And that 
experience and those reasons for joining Starfleet have also made him a little prone to self-sacrifice. Which, granted, is what the action hero does toward the end of the action movie, but by the end of the 09 movie, he was alone, running around the Romulan ship. He literally did sacrifice himself for a little while at the end of Darkness, and in this movie, he's poised to do it again, but because they're building this whole story about the Enterprise crew being family, the difference is that Captain Edison has no one to save him from being sucked out into space, and Kirk does. Well, Kirk was never in any real danger, because he was never alone. There you go. <laughs> and yet, that's what he's considering giving up at the beginning of the movie. You know, he proposes to the Commodore, which I like that she was a Commodore, by the way. Oh, yeah, that was interesting, yeah, I, I like that. But he does mention to the Commodore that Spock should take charge of the Enterprise and basically everything else would run as normal, Kirk would just be gone. And so that whole family that's been built up and, and the ensemble that's been put together for, for these movies, he's ready to just give it up, which is obviously something the movie can't allow to happen. No. And something that he learns by the end of the movie he really can't allow to happen. Uh, when at the same time, uh, Spock has pretty much decided to give all of that up as well. Well, Spock is sort of torn between what he feels is his duty to his race and his duty to Starfleet and this crew that he's part of. Right. And so he feels he has a higher duty to his fellow Vulcans to work with them to rebuild their society and rebuild the population rather than working with this Starfleet crew to do whatever it is that this Starfleet crew is doing. Right, scan a new nebula every week. But um, that is also, of course, the conclusion that he reached at the end of the 09 movie, only to be told you can be in two places at once. Well, now and he's not. Exactly, and now he can't, and so he's back to that decision. Which seems like he's also reconsidered by the end of the movie. This movie, and this was a criticism I had about Darkness as well, it does rehash the same thing in a lot of these movies. In some ways, yeah. Is Kirk worthy of being the captain? Kirk doesn't feel worthy. He thinks Spock would be better. But, oh, circumstances demand that Kirk be dragged in. Spock thinks he has a duty to Vulcan. Spock, you know, separates himself from Uhura because of his duty to the Vulcans. But, oh, no, now he realizes that was wrong, and so they're going to try to mend the relationship with Uhura. Now Kirk sees his place as on the bridge. Now he's earned that center seat again, again. It does sort of rehash the same sort of things that were already the main thrusts of the previous two movies, which again was one of the criticisms I had of Into Darkness, was that it rehashed those things from 09. True, but I feel like the trappings of the story, being a completely new story, kind of not cover it up and not paper it over, but it makes that more forgivable, I think. Especially since they're doing it in different ways now. Like you said, Kirk is still doubting himself, but doing it in a more mature way, in a more introspective way. I like that Kirk ponders existential questions while drinking with McCoy. That's very original series. Yes, definitely. And I mean, of course, McCoy is stealing booze from Chekhov, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love Chekhov's final line in the movie is, did you know scotch was invented by a little old lady in Russia? <laughs> yes. It's so good. 
There's this movie's just full of little throwaway callbacks like that, and I love them all. Totally. As we mentioned before, due to the circumstances in the plot, we get a lot of characters separated. And then, of course, throughout the rest of the movie, they have to come back together. But in the meantime, when everyone is separated, we get pairings of characters that haven't really been interacting as much in the previous movies. We get Spock and McCoy on their own, which is a pairing and a relationship that had not been emphasized very much in the previous two movies. The really rather underused McCoy and Carl Urban in general. And he did get a little more screen time. He got a little more to do in this movie. We had Kirk and Chekhov, which is a very interesting relationship that is not commented on previously. Scotty and Jayla kind of form an engineering bond, sort of, you know, and to, to introduce her and to give Simon Pegg some good bits of business in the movie he wrote. <laughs> that's another idea that sort of is really similar to what they do in a lot of novels, because that's sort of a storyline they do in a lot of the novels, a lot of the older novels that were more sort of standard episode of the week type novels and not the big mega event novels that they've been doing in like their last 10 or 15 years. But what they did on a lot of the novels was a thing that I sort of in my head just started calling the separation story where somebody beams down to the planet and then somebody's on a shuttlecraft and then some, and some people are left back up on the ship and some people are in the capital city on the planet and some people are in the countryside on the planet and then the coup happens or the aliens attack or something happens and everyone gets separated and nobody can communicate and they're all just sort of working on their own trying to solve their own small aspects of the problem and in the course of doing so they happen to bump into each other because they're all trying to solve the problem on their own and so they bump into the other groups as they all get closer to the solution that sort of general framework of a story was very, 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 very common in a lot of the novels, especially that I was reading in the early 90s when I really started to get into the novels. And so this movie sort of does the separation story, where Scotty and Jayla are working on the issue, and Kirk and Chekhov are working on the issue, and they have no communication with each other, but because they're both working on different aspects of the same problem, they happen to bump into each other. You know, And it's one way to deepen the plot a little bit, too, because these separated pairings are all finding out pieces of it. Yeah. And then as they come together, they put together more and more of what's actually happening. It also serves to emphasize each individual person that's separated. Because it's not just that Kirk is leading the crew and fighting the problem. It's Scotty's fighting the problem on his own. And Sulu and Uhura, they're fighting the problem on their own. And Kirk and Chekhov, they're fighting the problem on their own. And Spock and McCoy, they're fighting the problem on their own. And so it's not just Kirk leading and Spock's scientific brilliance and everyone doing their job and working together. They get closer to the solution to the problem. Scotty's off on his own. And he finds a random woman that no one's ever heard of before. And they're trying to do this on their own. And then Kirk and Chekhov are way over here, and they're trying to do it on their own. And Sulu and Uhura are trapped and captives, and they're trying to work from the inside. And everyone's sort of working independently, and so it, it emphasizes the importance of every individual person, and also the competence of every individual person, the brilliance of every individual person. 
Scotty is not just a valued member of the crew who does his job while everyone else is doing their job. When left on his own, he's still going to try to fix things. He's still going to try to solve the problem. He's still going to try to save the day, even left on his own. Not only is he going to try to save the day on his own, but he's going to advance closer to the solution of how to save the day. Kirk and Chekhov are left on their own. They don't have Spock's brilliance. They don't have McCoy's medical knowledge. They don't have Scotty's engineering skill. But they're still going to try to solve the problem on their own. And they're still going to make progress on the problem on their own. In fact, th these groups are going to make so much progress on their own without everyone else that they're going to find everyone else on their way to the solution. Yeah, exactly. Scotty is working on trying to fix the Franklin so that he can find the rest of the crew. Meanwhile, Kirk and Chekhov are going back to the saucer so they can use the sensors to find the rest of the crew. Meanwhile, Bones and Spock are, you know, trying to find the rest of the crew when they discover a little more about the MacGuffin in the movie. You know, they're all individually working toward the same goal in different ways. They're all individually working towards the same goal, and they're all individually progressing towards the same goal. Mm. That's the important part to me, and I don't know that I'm explaining this adequately or putting it into words very well, but... That's the important part to me is that they're all, even though they're separated, even though they're isolated, even though they're sort of abandoned on their own, they're not just like hunkering down trying to survive it. They're not like, oh, I wish I could solve this, but I'm not the great engineer that Scotty is. Or I wish I knew what to do, but I don't have the leadership skills that Kirk has. They're all trying to work on the problem. They're all trying to save the day. And not only are they trying it on their own, so we, like they're all plucky and trying to do it on their own, even though they don't have the rest of them, they're making progress. They're not doing anything that's ineffective. They're not trying and failing to work towards the solution to the problem. They're trying and progressing towards the solution to the problem, so much so that they all sort of bump into each other as they each approach the solution from their own various points. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the one exception to that, I suppose, is Sulu and Uhura, who do have their own bit of business that they do, but they, they do kind of fail. But... At the same time, that's our viewpoint into what's going on back at the enemy base, and to find out a little more about that. Well, they're sort of doing the same thing, though. They're, they're with the prisoners, but they're still, you know, they manage to break out and get a signal out that's detected by the others. They manage to find out bits of the puzzle that they've been able to report back to the others. Spock goes to try to rescue Uhura from wherever she's being held captive and is attacked and rescued by Uhura, who has beaten up her captors and is now beating up the people that were attacking Spock. Mm. <laughs> so, so yeah, that element of the movie I thought was really, really well done. And that's a lot of what I, what I mean when I talk about balance. That all of these groups of, char of characters were very well balanced in terms of importance to the movie, importance to revealing the plot... And in textual terms, in terms of what they were actually doing. So that very, very well handled there, I think. Yeah. Like I said earlier, I was glad to see Chekhov featured for where it's just him and Kirk. And they invade what's left of the saucer and they run their scan and they launch the thing and they have their whole escape sequence. I, I was glad that Chekhov got that sort of featured role in what obviously is Anton Yelchin's last role on the series now. Right. I was glad he wasn't just sort of there like he wasn't in Into Darkness where he had a couple of scenes but wasn't really an integral part of the plot. He was, as is, you know, the function of these separation stories, he was featured in his section and was very important and got a lot of screen time and got to do a lot within the story. I was, I was pleased to see that. By the way, the McCoy 
well, really just the McCoy, half of the McCoy-Spock interactions. Spot on. Absolutely brilliant. Both yes. the writing and the performance by Carl Urban. Great. And I thought it was really interesting what they did with Spock, where when he thinks he's dying, he sort of lapses into emotional displays and philosophical meanderings, rather than maintaining his usual Vulcan stoicism. That big scene between the two of them, the uh, fear of death is what keeps us alive scene where they're kind of contemplating mortality, not only is a classic Spock-McCoy scene that you, that you could have had like in any episode of the original series where they were captured and held prisoner, you know, any of 20 episodes, but also throughout that scene, I was starting to think... You know, Spock is is really displaying a lot of emotion here. You know, he mentions Ambassador Spock, and there's that single tear of manly grief. You know, he's he's really displaying a lot of emotion, and, and it seemed to me throughout the scene, he was just like more and more emotion, until he actually starts smiling and laughing, and suddenly McCoy isn't, you know, consoling his friend. He's horrified because when Spock starts laughing, something is very, very wrong. <laughs> well, even when they get to the Franklin and Spock starts spouting off stuff like, you know, we shall find hope in the impossible. It's like, that's not something he would say if he was feeling like himself. No, you're, you're delirious. <laughs> That that was very well because I was starting to think oh, this is a little out of character, and then McCoy realizes no, you're delirious. <laughs> that was great. So yes, that was very well done. Let's move on to something that might be a bit of a big deal in this movie, although maybe not in context. We'll we'll talk about that, but um, the destruction of the Enterprise. And the reason I say it might not be that big a deal is because they have beat up the Enterprise significantly in the last two movies, especially in Darkness. And so to see it actually destroyed, do you think that had all of the gravitas that it should have? Well, it depends how much gravitas you think it should have. True. I mean, it didn't have the impact of the destruction of the Enterprise in Star Trek Three because... That ship had been around for 15 years at that point. This ship has only been in two previous movies. So it's not going to have that kind of impact. It didn't have the impact of the destruction of the Enterprise in Generations. Because again, we'd seen that ship on screen for seven years. Mm. So it's hard to have that impact. I think it was done pretty well. I think it served the purpose that they wanted it to serve. Which is to strand everybody and separate everybody. You know, when you're doing one of these separation stories, you need to have some reason why they can't get in contact with the ship and coordinate with each other and beam back and forth and whatever. So you need some sort of communications interference or whatever. And one way of preventing them from coordinating with the people back on the ship or being able to beam up and down and beam people back and forth and beam supplies down is destroy the ship. <laughs> and then you don't have that rallying point anymore. So I thought that was a very effective... It didn't have, like, the gravitas of, holy shit, they destroyed the ship I've been watching since 1966. But it did serve to heighten the stakes in the film, where these people are sort of stranded at random points on the planet. And what the fuck are they going to do now? They can't get off the planet. They don't have a ship. You know, even if you can restore communications somehow, even if you can rescue the crew from their captors, what the fuck do you do then? So it, it did serve its purpose within the story, which is to heighten the stakes significantly and to separate everyone and remove their sort of safe home base of the ship. 
True. And considering the ship as the house, you know, as the home of this family that the crew is built up as, it's removing an essential element. Well, going from your metaphor of the ship as house and the crew as family, what makes the crew family? Is it that they serve on the same ship? Or are they still a crew? Are they still crewmates even though they're no longer the crew of this ship? The ship is gone. They're no longer crewmates because to be a crew, you have to be a crew on a ship. There's no ship. Well, But are they still family now? Like in Star Trek Three. People are assigned to different places. They're not on the ship. Nobody is assigned to the ship anymore because they're decommissioning the ship. But they're still the crew. Exactly. Which, of course, inevitably means that they'll have a new ship. Well, that sort of... It both reinforces and contradicts the point you were making before. If the metaphor is that the ship is like a house and therefore the people in it are like a family, this both contradicts and confirms that in that family isn't made by... Cohabitation. A family is still a family, even if they're homeless. A f- even beyond that, though, they, they were, from the angle that they were made a family by serving together on this ship, they're still a family without the ship. And that is really what proves that the crew is a family. Because, like I said, family isn't made by cohabitation. These people are still family, even though they're no longer crewmates. The one thing I didn't like, frankly, is that they have the Enterprise A by the end of the movie. I thought it would have been better if they just sort of had the ship under construction and it was heavily implied that, you know, they're going to get a new ship and there's still going to be a crew on a new ship in the next movie. I thought that would have been a better ending than, like, speed zooming through construction and having the completed ship right there before the end of this one. Yeah, that's something else that gets hyper-accelerated. I mean... We're in 2263 still, I suppose, and we've got the Enterprise A now. I mean, they're going to run through the letters. Well, they did the refit at the end of Darkness. Yeah. So, partly I didn't like the way they zoomed through it just to show the ship. I thought it would have been better to show the thing under construction as, like, the promise of the future, rather than zooming through construction and having it as a fait accompli. Plus, that gives you a few more years to design the Enterprise A. Yeah, plus you could have put some more work into designing it. It would have been a nice reveal during promotion for the next movie. Look, it's the new Enterprise. Or if you go, like, with the super-secret JJ methodology, it could be, you know, oh, we're super-secretive, you don't know what the new Enterprise is going to look like. Either way, they could have used it there. I like the theme of ending with the promise of the future rather than zooming straight to when the future is here, you know? I thought that would have been a nice note to end on. Also, it would give the people that make the next movie the chance to design the ship themselves rather than just having this thing they slapdashed together just to stick at the end of this one. I thought that that would have been better from the production standpoint. So I, I was sort of disappointed that they showed the new Enterprise at the end of this movie. Also, it's another sort of rehash of what they just did in the last movie where the ship was heavily damaged and had to be repaired and was sort of refit and had a whole new look to it at the end of last movie and the new look freshly rebuilt enterprise was debuted at the end of the last movie and to do it again at the end of this one again felt like kind of a rehash and do-over a little bit yeah to be fair i can't harp too much on the design of the enterprise a from seeing it for 30 seconds at the end of the movie but it's kind of just 
the Enterprise, but beefier, right? It, it's, it's, you know, a little chunkier. Also, when they did the Enterprise refit at the end of Darkness, they made the impulse engine at the back of the saucer bigger. And then when they did the Enterprise A, the impulse engine is even bigger. In addition to the star drive section being a little chunky. Well, you're the one that complained that there wasn't enough color. Now there's a giant red thing on the back of the saucer. It's even gianter. I do kind of like the design of the impulse engines that they've had on these Enterprises, actually. The way that the various, like, it's not just one light, you know? There's a lot of detail there. Yeah, I, I kind of like the design of the impulse engines. I still kind of wish they had designed the Enterprise A in 2018 or so, and we hadn't gotten to see it until the next movie started. Oh, yes, I agree. I thought that would have been a nice note to end on. You know, you see the ship under construction... And it's like, we have this to look forward to. It's the promise of the future for the crew that they're going to get this new ship. It's also the promise of the future for the audience that we're going to get a new movie. I would have liked that ending. You could even have still done the ending of the movie with the whole cast reading the Space Final Frontier monologue. With, you know, loving shots of the frame being built for the new ship. Yeah, they could have, you know, they could have done, like, sort of a mirror of the space dock scenes in Star Trek 1 or 2. Where you have, like, this half-built ship and a space dock and all the, like, work bees flying around. And the people in EVA suits with welding torches and whatever. And mm-hmm. do the monologue over the images of these people building a starship. Just don't show the finished ship at the end. Yeah, I mean, you could even, to really drive the point home, have, like, the one kind of finished section is the top of the saucer where it says 1701A. Yeah, that would have been cool. You know, if you really want to drive the point home, that not only are we getting a new ship, it's the Enterprise. Under the circumstances, I was kind of disappointed that Anton Yelchin wasn't the last one to speak during that whole group read-through. That would have been nice. Yeah, I can see that point. I mean, I wonder how much... Well, yeah, would... they probably recorded all that like 18 months ago. <laughs> well, I'm I'm assuming, I mean, it wouldn't have been too hard to have everyone read the whole thing before you decide how you want to intercut it. Mm, that's true. I don't know what sort of raw materials they had. You know, you just have everyone pause between each phrase so that you can cut it together. It does raise the question, who are they going to have read it at the end of Star Trek Four? Since apparently someone has to read it at the end of every movie now. They did Leonard Nimoy in the first one, and then they did Kirk at the end of Darkness, and now they did everyone at the end of Star Trek Three. Who are they going to have read it at the end of Star Trek Four? Lieutenant Jayla. <laughs> I was wondering if maybe there'd be like, you know, Cadet Jayla or Ensign Jayla in the next movie. I was disappointed that they didn't incorporate Alice Eve somehow. Yeah, I can see how they wouldn't have been able to, because to bring Alice Eve back, you would have had to give her some sort of featured role in the movie. Yeah, she wouldn't really have fit into this story. I didn't miss her in this movie, but sort of going into the movie, I wished they had brought her over from Darkness, since the whole point of Darkness was, you know, found family among the crew, and she was welcomed into the family at the end of that movie. It would have been nice if she was there in this one. It is kind of a nice parallel, though, to kind of bring Jayla into the family a little bit. If she shows up in Star Trek Four. If she does, but still, there's there's that sort there's of... There's an open spot. Uh... You know, Chekhov is dead, and or the first officer on the Reliant, who will never be seen nor heard from again. There's an open spot. Uh-huh.
there there's an open spot and they didn't have what was his name the cyborg dude from darkness <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if they've carried over any of the background extras, other than reportedly Cupcake, but I'm going to have to see proof of that. Yeah, supposedly. What about James Doohan's son, who was at the transporter console in 09 in Darkness? I don't know where they would have had him in this movie, since all the transporter scenes were on the Franklin, and mm -hmm. that was just with the Bare Bones crew. I mean, he might have been in, the, in one of the crowd scenes. Yeah, it looks like he got cast as Scotty in a fan film series. Yeah. Which means he's probably not going to be an official Star Trek anymore. Well, I don't know. There's there's all sorts of stuff going on with the fan films now. Uh, we were talking about the Enterprise, and we talked about the Franklin before. You want to talk about some other design elements of the movie? Um, well, we could go into uniforms, if you'd like. We've covered <laughs> uniforms in the previous movies. Yeah, I know you're raring to go. They made a lot, a lot, a lot of uniforms for Star Trek 09, and they made a lot, a lot, a lot of uniforms for Into Darkness. And they made a significant number of uniforms for this movie. I mean, like I said, I'll have to watch it 10 or 12 more times and take copious notes to really speak with authority. But at the minimum, we have new Starfleet uniforms, which I have to say I'm not a huge fan of. Like the big high neck in the back, I don't like how that works. You know, I wasn't that huge a fan when I first saw them in the trailers and in some of the... Uh publicity photos, but seeing the whole movie, I got used to them really quickly. They're fine. I don't have a great objection. I just don't like the way, the, like, the super high necks on the back. I, I don't like the way that looks. Yeah, th that's that's not anything that I really have an objection to at this point. I mean, I get that they wanted to redesign the uniforms so that the women could have ranks, but I don't understand why they couldn't have just put long sleeves on the old uniforms, why they had to make them completely new. I, I, I don't know the full story behind that. I, I assume it might just be, you know, Justin Lin maybe bringing in some different costume people and people putting their own stamp on it. Anyway, we have those Enterprise uniforms. And then we also have, like, a jacket that Kirk wears with, like, gold stripes on the shoulders. Yeah, and, the, the away team jackets that people have when they get out of the escape pods. And che yeah, Chekhov is wearing one as well. And then we have the Franklin jumpsuit uniforms that look very similar to the uniforms from the Enterprise series. And then, but then the Franklin also has jackets, and they're different jackets from the jackets that the Enterprise officers have. Mm. When they get to the Franklin, like Spock in particular puts on like an old jacket from the Franklin because the jacket he's wearing is red instead of blue. So it's not his jacket. Yeah, because his uniform gets torn up. But it's a different design jacket than the ones that Kirk and Chekhov are wearing. And then there's also... Well, there's also the Yorktown uniforms. There's a particular uniform that all the staff on the Yorktown wore, and Kirk yes. when he went to meet with the Commodore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was what I was going to say next. Who was, who was that actor who played the commander of the Yorktown? He looked kind of like a fat Greg Grunberg. I think that was Greg Grunberg. Really? It doesn't look anything like he looked in Force Awakens. I was pretty sure that was Greg Grunberg. Yes, uh, IMDb lists him as Commander Finnegan. It's amazing. Good lord, Finnegan! I don't understand, why did he gain 60 pounds since The Force Awakens? Who could say? <laughs> okay, they should have had a scene where Kirk sort of did a double take and called him uncle or stepfather or whatever. 
<laughs> I did I did think about that when uh, when I first saw him. You know, I was thinking, oh, he's back. I thought it looked a lot like Greg Grunberg, but I immediately said, nah, it couldn't be Greg Grunberg because he's in J.J. Abrams stuff and J.J. Abrams didn't direct this. And also, like I said, he didn't look that much like Greg Grunberg. I don't know. Well, here we are. So yes, there were those five uniforms at minimum. There's possibly more that I missed because I've only seen the movie once and I was actually watching the movie, not counting uniforms and making note of them. I know, strange. Yeah, I was wondering about the alien captain, the woman who kind of lures them into the nebula to get attacked. Mm-hmm. Um, when she showed up at the Yorktown and she's kind of being examined to establish a baseline for the Universal Translator, which is an interesting scene to put in, by the way, mm. to kind of explore a tiny little bit of this sort of algorithm that you have to be subjected to, to just, you know, speak normally for a little while while the Universal Translator learns your language. That was pretty cool. But the costume she was wearing in that scene, I was wondering if that was some sort of, like, medical or, or, or some other uniform that she had. I wasn't quite sure about that one. But, so yeah, lots of uniforms still. You know, and, and, and again, you have ship uniforms and starbase uniforms. You know, everywhere you go, you wear a different thing. Yeah, that, there's a little too much of that, in my opinion, in this, but, you know. They can sell five different lines of action figures, right? Speaking of crossovers with The Force Awakens, do you want to comment on Star Trek going to a planet and finding a woman living on her own who is very fierce and independent and fights with a staff? I was thinking about that at various points during the movie, yeah. My main thought on that was that, you know, this movie came out six months after Force Awakens, but it was obviously made like 12 or 18 months before Force Awakens came out, so... But I could certainly see Star Wars people trying to make hash out of that. Sort of like the war without end between DS9 and Babylon 5 people. Oh, God. I am no longer 12 years old. I don't have time for Star Trek versus Star Wars in fighting anymore. We're all dorks. I (laughs) I didn't have time for it even back then, but, you know, fandom wars, it's what we do. Well, it's not what we do, but it's what internet people do. Uh, the the collective we, yeah. And it's not all fans, but, you know, there are the loud minority that do that sort of thing. There are the loud minority who have, like, adopted The Force Awakens as the JJ thing they like. Or, alternatively, I mean, all due credit to Kathleen Kennedy and everyone else who made the movie, but there's also a tendency to kind of ignore the fact that JJ was there, too. Can I just say, there, like we've talked about, a certain vocal minority of fans do these things. There have been fans who have hated this entire reboot series of movies and hated J.J. Abrams and hated everything he did with the movies and hated, in particular, the treatment of women in the first two movies. The women don't have sleeves on their uniforms, so they don't have ranks. And there's that underwear scene with Alice Eve. And none of the women have featured roles. And Uhura's the only woman in the crew, and her main role is as a love interest for Spock. And they hate J.J. Abrams, and they hate everything he's done with these movies, and they hate, in particular, his misogyny. And then... 
Because I read these people online, and I saw one of these people commenting about how the character Jayla was featured prominently in some of the promo materials for the movie, because she's the guest star, and they always feature the guest star in the promo materials. But because Jayla, the female character, was featured in the promo materials, this person commented that this is such a stark departure from what they did on the previous two movies, where there was only one main female character and her main role was as the love interest, and there was that gratuitous underwear scene they made Alice Eve do, and the previous movies treated women like shit, and now they're featuring this great new woman character in all the promo materials. The Star Trek people obviously learned from what J.J. did on Star Wars with Rey. Well... Hmm... I literally had to, like, turn off my computer for a while after reading that. This is why I often say I have no time for people that don't like the reboot. You, you want to shit on the reboot, go over there and do it on your own. <laughs> I have no time for these people. That's a very... That's a special comment. <laughs> Goodness. Um, well, I mean, in terms of women in this movie, Jayla obviously gets quite a bit to do and quite a bit that's not, you know stereotypically feminine. You know what I liked? A kind of a small point, but one particular point that I liked, and this can be taken several ways, but I thought the way they did it in the movie was done well. A lot of times when they have a woman amongst the group of heroes, they have to have a woman amongst the group of villains so that the woman can fight the woman and so that you can have a fight scene without having a guy trying to beat up a woman. Which, on the one hand, is... Good for, in a way. It's understandable. You can easily do a fight scene between a man and a woman and make it look like domestic violence and you don't want to do that. Mm. But on the other hand, it just sticks out like a sore thumb that the only woman among the villains happens to be the one that gets into the fight with the woman among the heroes. And so I appreciated when Jayla has her big fight scene when, when she is shooting people as part of the distraction to rescue the crew and she has to fight off the attackers from among Idris Elba's people that they don't have, like, one woman among Idris Elba's people for her to fight with. That she's just fighting whoever's there. And then she, she almost gets an Ego Montoya's journey where... You know, Crawl's, like, number two bad guy killed her father, and so she has to fight him. Yeah. But I thought... I understand the impulse that you don't want to do a fight scene between a man and a woman, because it's really easy to do that in a really bad way. But if you can do it without doing it in a really bad way, I like how they handled it here. Where, like I said, they didn't just have one female villain whose only reason for existing was so she could have a fight scene with the female hero. Yeah. The reason why all of the villains are men is another issue. <laughs> but... Yeah, that that's a thing. And, I mean, in terms of women in this movie, there are still, you know... Well, there's... Less of them than the men. Yes. Far, far fewer, yes. In terms of major characters, there's still just Jayla and Uhura... But, you know, there's also the, there was also the Commodore, and also, um, what was her name? Lieutenant Sill? Yes. Who was hiding the thing, and the woman who lured them into the nebula, the one female villain. Um. <laughs> I suppose, yeah. But she wasn't a woman because they needed someone to have a fight scene with Jayla. 
Yeah. She didn't interact with Jayla at all. Yeah, exactly. So so you still have the two main characters in the movie are women, and we're still not passing the Bechdel test, but hey. Yeah, I think you're... They never had a scene together. Uhura had a scene with Syl. Did she have a scene or just They were in the same scene. They were in the same scene, but they spoke and she to was each about other. to reveal the thing, and Uhura said, Sil, no, don't. That was, that was, you know... That passes. That's a better pass than Insurrection, which passes because Troy and Crusher talk about their boobs. Oh, uh, good lord. Yeah, Star Trek movies do not have a good history with the Bechdel in the least. Bechdel is an incredibly low bar, and this movie does manage to pass it with that scene between Uhura and Sil. If I remember correctly, like I said, I've only seen the movie once... So, if I'm remembering that correctly, I think you can argue it passes there. Uh, possibly. But, you know... It's still, you know... It, it, it's, there's it's, like eight men and those two women in the but, main cast. But I still think it's a good thing that you have... You know, you have Uhura and Jayla both as women who hold their own in terms of importance to the plot. And in terms of... Physical violence. Physical violence, in terms of agency. Um, and some of the minor characters... You know, are are women as well? You have you have the Commodore, you have Silly, you 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 have you know other people. It's not equal, but it's better than it could have been. I'll say that much. <laughs> you know, baby steps. Well, they did sort of hamstring themselves when they stuck to the character descriptions from the 1966 series, which was six men and a woman. So when that's your baseline, it's sort of hard to get towards a more equal representation when you're starting out six to one. Well, that's why I'm pointing out people like Sil and the Commodore were, were, you know, smaller roles that don't come from the TV show that are kind of fleshing out the crew and the command structure and all that. So it's, it's good to have more women in there, for sure. Let's talk about the music in this movie, as we have in all of these movies. And this section might be a little more pared down compared to some of the others because we literally just got home from seeing the movie and haven't had a chance to kind of soak in the entire score album, which is actually coming out on the Friday, so we're not technically supposed to have it yet. Yeah, the score album comes out tomorrow, just like the movie does. Exactly. So, you know, we've only heard it in context, just the ones paying attention to the plot and the characters and dialogue and all that, but... In terms of general impressions of the score, um, Michael Giacchino, of course, is is back again after his last two great scores for the series. And I believe he's actually the first composer other than Jerry Goldsmith to do three Star Trek movies, right? Yeah. So he's definitely making his mark. And I think in this movie, it feels like he's doing more with the pre-established themes than he had before. Especially the main theme and some of the associated, like, introductions and lead-ins to that theme. Those popped up on their own several different times. There were some great variations on the Enterprise theme in the battle where the ship is destroyed, where Scotty is working in engineering, trying to patch things together. Yeah. And they keep using these variations on the Enterprise theme. Those were really interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing them when we get the score. Yeah, absolutely. And as Kirk is evacuating on the escape pod and he sees the saucer kind of falling into the atmosphere of the planet, there's this really compelling, really fresh kind of elegy version of Kirk's theme, the main theme, 
It's used with the choir in a way that it never really has been before. The, the, the choir is singing parts of the theme. The choir has lyrics, it sounds like. Yeah. Uh, which, which gives it a very different effect from kind of wordless chords as choir is usually used in film music in particular. That gave it a really different feel that really kind of heightened that scene and did try to give it some of that gravitas that you're supposed to feel when they're destroying the Enterprise. And so I think he really made the most of the main theme in the movie. And there are some nice versions of, of the Enterprise theme. Spock's theme, I didn't notice any like great new variations. It was there a few times. Yeah, it didn't jump out at me other than where Spock and McCoy are sitting and they're talking about Ambassador Spock and Spock's duty to New Vulcan. They play it there, but it's not, you know, a groundbreaking new variation. Right. That's the only time I remember noticing it. In terms of new themes, there's one theme that appears to be for the Yorktown station that is kind of the main hook that stuck in my head a, a little bit after the movie. Is that the one they use? There's a theme that they use during the battle at the Yorktown station toward the end of the movie that sounds a lot like something else, but I don't know what else. That yeah. happens to me a lot. I hear a piece of music and I go, oh, that sounds just like something else that I can't think of. Yeah, I, I can't place it either. I've been trying to. There's this uh, video that the uh, score label of Sarah Band that's putting out the CD put on their YouTube page that has, you know, sample clips from a few of the tracks. And I, and I picked it out there as, like, the one big new theme that I could identify. And I really can't place what it reminds me of. Um, it, it's used during that battle at the Yorktown base. It's used earlier in the movie when they first arrive there and are kind of showing off the base as the Enterprise kind of travels through it. It, it has a couple good variations there, but I just can't place what it reminds me of. Yeah, I'm going to have to listen to, once we get a copy of the CD, I'm going to have to listen to that and try to identify it. Yeah. Hopefully that thing comes out soon so that we have music to use as bumpers on this podcast. Oh, goodness. Oh, no. <laughs> Or else we'll be left having to use the Rihanna song. We'll get there. We'll talk about that. We'll we'll get there sooner than later, actually. Um, I liked, there was a piece, if I remember correctly, it was in the battle where the Enterprise is destroyed. Some of the action music in that scene sounded a lot like the action music in the 09 movie from right before they rescue Captain Pike and beam back to the Enterprise. It sounded yeah. really similar to that action music. Yeah, that stood out to me, too. I, I like, again, sort of callbacks to the previous work. I liked that. I think there's also kind of a smaller theme for Crawl, too. If there is, it didn't. I didn't recognize it from just watching the movie once. It yeah. didn't jump out at me enough. Yeah, I think during some of his scenes, there was something that registered, you know, that, that I thought was repeated but it didn't make much of an impression past that. I'm assuming there's some sort of crawl theme and there's probably some sort of Jayla theme, I'm uh, guessing. Maybe. There's nothing I've picked out, but again, heard yeah. it in the movie once. So, yeah, we don't have our typical exhaustive analysis of the score quite yet this time. Yeah, you haven't studied the liner notes from the 2CD version yet. Uh, no, not Come really. Come back in 2018, we'll have more to say. Yeah. Uh, well, they've typically done these things a year later for, for the last two movies, so I'll be looking for that next summer. And then it's got to have time to, you know, soak in and, and consider it, so... Exactly. So... One thing that was interesting, I thought, in this movie was the use of non-score music. Which they haven't really done a lot of. Like, the last really significant use... 
I mean, obviously in the 09 movie, they used Sabotage that one time, but other than that, you're really going back to, like, a couple of jukebox songs in First Contact, and then some, like, source music from Star Trek IV when they go back in time. So I thought it was really interesting, the use of songs at two particular points in this movie. Yes, this movie places a great deal of emphasis musically on that's on that sort of diegetic source music. You know, we hear a couple of pieces of uh, classical music. I <laughs> they called it classical music. I love that they actually pointed out that it's classical music because you see people complaining all the time about the Beastie Boys in these movies. And I don't understand how they can complain about the Beastie Boys in these movies when they never complain about Mozart. Mozart's way older. Theoretically, that should have been lost to the dustbin of history before the Beastie Boys were, right? That's why I love that they specifically call out at the end of this movie that that's classical music. Yeah. Because it's 200 years old. And if you, if you can have Mozart and Beethoven and, you know, Picard's listening to Berlioz and Gilbert and Sullivan and they're all reading Shakespeare, everyone's favorite fucking author is Shakespeare. It, exactly. Exactly. The difference there is that it's... It's not more contemporary for the characters, it's more contemporary for the audience. And there's that sort of expectation that, you know, in, in this far future world, that they're not going to still be listening to our contemporary music. Although, I mean, in that case, they really shouldn't be using our contemporary idioms when they speak to each other. Yeah. And they shouldn't really be using our contemporary dialects of the English language, or whatever language you're seeing the movie in. They shouldn't be using our dialect, and they really shouldn't be using our idioms, which anyone who's read Shakespeare can tell you change over the course of hundreds of years. I thought it was really interesting. They do... Spoilers. They reuse sabotage in one scene, which I, which I liked. And I liked that Kirk hears it and says, hmm, that's a good choice. I thought that, again, callbacks. I thought that was really well done there. Oh, man. As they were building up to that, where they have the whole thing about, you know, loud and distracting, I know just the thing. And at that point, I knew it was either going to be the same song they'd used earlier or it was going to be Sabotage, a callback to the 09 movie. And I like that they, if they're going to use Sabotage there, I like that they had Kirk comment on it. Like, oh, yeah, I remember one time when I heard this old piece of music. I, I really liked that touch. But Sabotage is just sort of, you know, it's pop music. It's, you know, Beastie Boys. The other song they use earlier in the film is they have Jayla listening to an old copy she found on the Franklin of Public Enemies Fight the Power. Which is not just some innocuous piece of popular music. That is a very politically charged piece of music. That, especially when it came out, and even to an extent now, that is not just some innocuous piece of popular music to throw in a movie and say, oh, ha ha, I'm listening to this 200-year-old piece of music. Um, I wonder how much thought they put into that choice. That's not just a listen all y'all, it's a sabotage, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you know what? If they're going to use this, you know, more contemporary music, if, they, if, if they're going to keep up with, you know, the Beastie Boys in particular, I, I get kind of a goofy, campy fun out of the fact that they just went whole hog with it. 
Oh, yeah. You know, if they're going to have it in the movie, it's not just, you know, little kid Kirk's playing it in a car anymore. It's not just Kirk has a turntable in his apartment. It's, you know, the Beastie Boys saved the day. <laughs> I mean, the people who don't like it are going to hate it. But <laughs> if you're, you know... If you don't really care about it, or if you get a little bit of enjoyment out of it, it's it's just so fun. The Beastie Boys saved the day at the end of Star Trek. I mean, that's kind of amazing. <laughs> they do sort of go whole hog with it, going, you know, orchestrating the battle with the ebbs and flows of the song. Yes! Using the song as an underscore. They, they really just did whole hog with it, and I appreciate that. You know, like I said, it, it's... I guess it's kind of sort of campy. I don't know if campy is exactly the right word, but it's sort of... I guess it can be seen as, like, less serious than a standard battle with score underneath it to, like, orchestrate the battle with the ebbs and flows of Sabotage by the Beastie Boys. But I thought it was great. I loved it. Where where, where the, uh... Well, when, when... Where the shields come up on the station just when the Beastie Boys get to that part of the song where it goes... I thought that was fucking great. Oh, man. It was building up to that part of the song, and I was thinking, what are they going to do for this part of the song? And then they cut to Greg Grunberg in the Yorktown. <laughs> like, they're picking up the signal. And, and <laughs> I forget what the actual line is, but Greg Grunberg basically commands whoever's under him to pump up the jams. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then... <laughs> Oh my god. You know, like I said, the people who don't like it are going to absolutely hate it. I, I liked it all. But it's kind of amazing. Also in the pop musics integrated into this new Star Trek adventure is, of course, the Rihanna song, which has garnered some reaction. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen much of the reaction. From what you're saying, it sounds like it's garnered negative reaction. I mean, I'm not a fan of the song, but it, are people that opposed to it? There are people who are very opposed to it. Of course, there there are going to be the people who react to Rihanna wanted to put her song in the Star Trek movie because she's a huge Star Trek fan with a bunch of, you know, fake geek girl nonsense. Um. Which I don't even want to engage with because it's obvious bullshit, but it's these are things that a lot of people say and it's obviously bullshit. I mean, I don't know what she's a fan of and what she's not. She may be a huge Star Trek fan. I don't know. It would not be outside the realm of possibility that she said she was as part of a marketing campaign because she's got her song tied in with the new movie. That's not outside the realm of possibility. People get their song attached to a movie and then do a bunch of interviews like, oh, I'm a big fan of the movie. So I don't know if she's a fan or not. I have no idea. I don't know her. I don't know her tastes. I don't know if she likes Star Trek or not. If she does, I don't know if she's a big fan or a casual fan. I have no idea. And, and neither does anyone else. And anyone else claiming to is probably being... Are they being sexist or are they being racist? Yes. Put your hands together. <laughs> um, like I said, I haven't seen the reaction. So I don't know if they're offended that this black person claims to like Star Trek. Or I don't know if they're offended that this woman claims to like Star Trek. And what you're saying is put your hands together. They're not so specific in their comments and their tweets. Um, well, are they calling her gendered slurs or are they calling her racist slurs? I don't really get in the muck of that stuff as much. I've seen a lot of stuff about, oh, I bet she's not a real fan. 
Um, you know, and she she did um, she did a video for this 50th anniversary thing that was put together for uh, the convention, I think, in Vegas. Hmm. You know, and they had a montage of all sorts of you know notable fan people and celebrities and, and whatever who are fans, and she was part of it. With her vintage late seventies, early eighties Kirk and Spock T-shirt, <laughs> you know, talking about how how she likes Star Trek so much, and reactions I've seen have ranged from "Hey, cool" to "She didn't mention any episode titles, so she's not a real fan." God, that's that same. It's the same gatekeeping bullshit. It's the same thing they did when back before the change in production staff when Roberto Orsi was going to direct and he hired these two writers to write the movie with him. And so there were all these articles about like, you know, are these two new writers Star Trek fans and do they know the original series and do they know this episode? And it's like, who gives a fuck? You know? You know, I, I, I keep saying Nick Meyer didn't know a damn thing. Nick Meyer and Harv Bennett didn't know a fucking thing before they made Star Trek 2. And they made yeah. Star Trek 2. The movie that every movie since has tried to be. So Rick Berman didn't know a damn thing. Michael Piller didn't know a damn thing. People like Next Gen pretty well. Even apart from the misogynist, racist stuff, they do this gatekeeping even to white guys, and it's still bullshit then. And it's bullshit whenever they do it to anyone. Like I said, I don't know if she's a, actually a fan or if she's just saying that because she's trying to market her song that's attached to the movie. I don't care. Well, at any rate, so they used the song over the end credits, and it's, you know... It's a fine enough song. It's fine. It's a song. It's, you know, like I, I said, I'm not a fan of it, but it, it's not to my taste, but I'm not the one they're trying to market with it. Yeah. I'm not the one who they're trying to say, hey, do you like this Rihanna song? Come see Star Trek. It's not aimed at me. Yeah. In, in terms of, you know, pop songs on Star Trek movies, I'd put it around the middle, you know? Well, what are you calling a pop song? Like, the who, who sang that... Disco version of the original series, of the motion picture theme. Yeah, there's uh, Sean Cassidy's The Star Beyond Time, the love theme from the motion picture, which I th I think is, is boffo fun. Um, nothing from 2. Uh, in Star Trek 3, the pop uh, group Group 87 did a sort of disco instrumental version of uh, the Enterprise theme from uh, Star Trek 3. In Star Trek 4, there was I Hate You, obviously, which is the gold well, standard. That, yeah, that's obviously the best. Yes. Um, but also a couple of, like, pop jazz-ish things. When oh, yeah, like when they're walking through traffic and stuff? Yeah, exactly. Those are inoffensive, but nothing particular. And on the album, there's, like, Kenny G's version of the whale theme. Mm. Uh, Star Trek V had the classic The Moon's a Window to Heaven by Hiroshima. That's actually not a horrible song. <sighs> I, uh, it's, uh, I'd rank it ahead of the Rihanna Sledgehammer. No, nah, I don't think I would. Um, and, and that kind of ends the uh, Star Trek en engagement with like original songs and, and original engagements with pop music of the time. Like you said, First Contact had a couple of jukebox songs... Insurrection at Gilbert and Sullivan, you know. So they did a couple of things, but mostly in the eighties. You you had a lot of these things being done in the eighties, which I think is very typically eighties. Mm. Uh, and and so to have this song in the end credits, I mean, the negative reaction I think is so outsized that I wanted to mention it, but I'm not like a super huge fan of it. It's fine. It's a it's a fine enough song. 
I understand wishing that there was another five minutes of Michael Giacchino's score music rather than that song over the end credits, but I imagine that's not the source of most people's disappointment, is it? Yeah, that's something else I was going to say. I mean, in the score episode we did for the 09 movie, I talked about the role that a fully composed end credits suite can play in a movie and in a score and Darkness didn't really get it, and this movie has, you know, a reprise of the original series theme, and then the Rihanna song, and then a reprise of, I believe, the cue from early in the movie during Kirk's Captain's Log, with a really good piano version of the main theme as well. Yeah, it's sort of a... yeah. Um, which hadn't really been done like that. That's sort of a standard thing that everyone does, but it's always good. Yeah. When they do sort of like an isolated piano version of the theme. Yeah, like really pared down, spare piano version of the theme really played well in that cue. And that go to the use of piano in the Rihanna song, frankly. See, I compared it more to uh, London Calling. Yeah, that too. See, when I first heard that Rihanna was doing a song called Sledgehammer to tie into the movie, I thought it was going to be a cover of the Peter Gabriel song. Yeah, that's the joke literally everyone's made already. I'm not joking. I literally thought that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I saw the title of the song was Sledgehammer, and I'm like, really? That could be interesting. And then it wasn't. Eh, well, like I said, it's fine. We, we talk, we've probably talked about it enough for just saying, eh, it's fine. Well, we don't. We can't talk about the rest of the music because we haven't heard the score yet. Well. We have to see the movie eight or ten. We have to listen to the score hundreds of times and then watch the movie eight or ten more times to see how the score is used in the movie. Well, send us some questions about the score for our mailbag, listeners, and we will have more to say about it probably in the future. Before we get out of here, let's talk pretty quickly about some of the news that's come out recently about the next Star Trek movie. I mean, we've barely digested or begun to digest this new one, but already they've confirmed that they're making a 14th Star Trek movie. That? They already confirmed that? Yeah. Cool. Is it all the same people? I haven't heard anything about a director. I don't know if Justin Lin is going to come back. That's something else I wanted to say about Justin Lin. I assume he brought in different cinematographers and such than J.J. had, but the movie kind of had a different visual sense. Not only because it doesn't have the lens flares, but also like the way that they visualized the ship. You know, that shot concentrating on the torpedo bay as the rest of the space station scrolls by past the ship as they're leaving the station. Hmm. And the way that they visualize the ship at warps. Just some of the visual style of the movie was a little different, which I would put completely to Justin Lin and I assume his cinematographers. But I haven't heard anything about Justin Lin coming back. I think it's pretty likely that he won't. He'll probably, you know, have other projects. But the two people, whose names I don't recall, who wrote the first version of a screenplay for Star Trek Thirteen that got thrown out when Simon Pegg and others wrote a new script that became Beyond, those two are back and writing a screenplay for the next Star Trek movie. The two people that Orsi hired back yeah. before he got fired? Yes. Huh. Uh, that's, that's what I've heard. And also... I believe it's been confirmed at this point that the next Star Trek movie will have Chris Hemsworth in it. Really? Who played Kirk's father briefly at the beginning of the 09 movie. Is that going to be like a flashback or... Again, Is he playing like prime George Kirk who comes from the other universe? I don't know. There isn't really 
much other information about the movie yet, but that could be a number of things. It could be, you know, time travel shenanigans, it could be Prime Universe, it could be Mirror Universe, it could be any other alternate universe. Well, Kirk's... Or, or like a flashback or a vision or something, who knows. Well, this movie did confirm that Kirk's mother is still alive. Yes. Who literally hasn't been heard from since she gave birth. Yeah. So... But this movie confirms she's still alive and he's still in touch with her, so... So, I don't know exactly how that's going to shake out, but it's interesting. And not a direction I would have expected them to go in, really. Well, we still don't know what the story is. That's true. Have they confirmed that Chris Hemsworth is playing George Kirk, or is he just there to play someone else? I'm not sure of the exact wording, but who else would he be playing? Just any random person. I think they're going to put him under 10 pounds of latex? Apparently they might. Or even if they don't, he doesn't have to be playing the same character. Madge Sinclair was on The Next Generation. She wasn't playing the captain from Star Trek IV. Yeah, but within a span of a few movies where they've kept talking about Kirk's father... I mean, a lot of his angst in this movie was about his father and his legacy and how he fits into that. And so to keep bringing it up and then bring Chris Hemsworth back heavily implies that that's something they're going to be engaging with. But, of course, who knows? I mean, whatever script they're writing could get thrown out right before they start filming again. Yeah. So I just wanted to touch on that news because it's interesting. It's really hard to say anything without just sort of fantasy booking the movie and then commenting on your fantasy booking since we don't know anything about the story or what it involves or how it goes true uh there is much yet to be determined like i said we're, we're barely starting to digest this movie but as we continue to digest this movie we are going to bid you adieu dear listeners but first now that our trek through these movies has reached the end of the available movies. We are going to be looking to do that Star Trek mailbag episode that I've been banging on about for months. So please, 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 if you have any questions or comments, anything you would like for us to discuss about the movies, about other comments you have on things we talked about in our episodes, about any of the TV shows or any part of the franchise, any of the music, if you want to hear us talk more about the music, any part of the Star Trek franchise that you would like to ask us about or suggest that we talk about, we want to hear from you. You can reach me at Bun on the Twitter and the Tumblr, you can email me, G-L-E-N-N-B, at placetobenation.com. You can comment on the Facebook post for this episode on the Place to Be Nation Facebook page, or our chat group, or anywhere else. You can reach me on Facebook if you really want to. Reach out and touch me with your questions. Scott, nobody's reaching out and touching you. No. But they can reach out and touch me. I like to be touched. That's not what you said the last time. Good night, listeners.
You know what your name would be if I shipped you with Gainus? Glenn. <laughs>